Our scripture tonight is Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading a, a good portion of it, but, um, but as we begin, um, I, I would just like to read one, one line and then we'll pray and then we'll dig in together. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, I'm going to read verse 24. Let us listen carefully, for this is God's word. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, as we just sang, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to to lay ourselves down and that by your Spirit you would rid us of ourselves and that we would trust in you and you alone. God, we know that you know each and every one of us in this room better than we know ourselves. And through Christ, you have set your love on us. And so we abide in that love tonight. We come to your word. We come to your truth, eager to hear from you. So, dear Lord, please speak to us through your word and your spirit tonight that we might be both confronted and comforted by your truth of who you are and what you have done and help us to not only adore you, Christ, but to obey you. And so we come to your word tonight expecting to meet with you. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. So for the next month, um, we're going to be looking at some different kind of community, church community commitments that we have. So the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at four different topics that are commitments within our church family. And uh, there are lots of different topics that we could have picked, but we picked four discipleship this week, gospel living, Uh, then I'll I'll be doing those two, and then Thomas Ritchie, our elder, he's going to be preaching on shepherding, and then Colin Hansen, one of our members and home group leaders, he's going to be talking about community. So the next four weeks, we're going to be walking through these different commitments, and tonight is discipleship. And there are lots of different questions that come up regarding discipleship. I get get asked them a lot as, as a pastor that questions about discipleship. I, I have questions myself about what it, what it means to, um, to do discipleship. And maybe, maybe you have had one of those experiences where you've heard someone talk about their discipleship experience. Like they, they got some wise, like Gandalf, sage person that just started mentoring them. And, and it was just beautiful and amazing. And, and you're like, I, I want that experience. And so you find somebody and and it's just not that experience. And so like you, you kind of, you go from thing, to, so you're wondering like, is there, do I need to get a different book? Like, do I just go to Books a Million and find like the discipleship section and, and do something there? Or you know what, I'm, I'm really gonna commit, I'm gonna dig in, I'm gonna read my Bible for like an hour every morning for two days in a row. And then that doesn't even happen. And so you, you have, I have these problems. I don't know if you have these problems, but we come with these questions to what is discipleship? And that's a really important question. It's one that we want to answer here within our church family. So what is discipleship? And really to, to dig into answering that question, we have to go back to fundamentally 
what does it mean to be a disciple? This, this, this process of being a disciple, this discipleship, what does it mean to actually be a follower of Jesus? Because if, depending on what our expectations are here, that's going to change everything. Those of you that are married, you know that like, hopefully somebody talked to you at some point in premarital counseling or just a, a conversation. Like Your expectations really change things. If you go in with different sets of expectations, like that, that's just a recipe for disaster. And likewise, when we have these different expectations of what discipleship, what church is supposed to be like, and we come into a place like this, and we say, I've got these expectations, they better be met, or what? There's another church, like, literally next door. I can just go, I can really, I can park in the same spot and just go elsewhere in Birmingham. And so, so that's kind of the, the MO a lot of the times, is I have my expectations, I'm going to go to this place, and then I've got to find where those expectations are met. And so it's really important for us to ask these kinds of questions. What is discipleship? What are your personal expectations for discipleship? And and how did you get those? Where did they come from? Are they biblical? And so, so when it comes to asking that question, then we fundamentally come to, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so we come here to Matthew 16. So where we stand here in Matthew 16, just a little bit of background from our previous sermon series on David. This is a thousand years later, all right? So we, we are now transcending space and time. Now it's, two, it's a thousand years later. Jesus is teaching his disciples. And what's happened in this thousand year time is that for about 400 years, Israel had a king or two kings with a divided kingdom. Things were kind of moving along. You had good kings, you had bad kings, things that kind of ebbed and flowed and all of that. But then you had threats from Babylon, you had threats from Assyria, you had all these threats going on. And so the monarchy, like who was ruling Israel, was really in flux for a while until it all just kind of came crashing down, 586, Babylonian captivity. So they're exiled. Then they come back in, they build the temple back because Solomon's temple has been just completely destroyed. They build that back up. And then from, from get-go, it is other kings and kingdoms coming in and taking reign over and over and over. That happens for hundreds of years. And then about 90 years previous to this moment, then the Roman power really comes in. And so Jesus is teaching here at a place that we'll see in verse 13, the Caesarea Philippi, where, where they go to that place. There are foreign gods and idols and foreign worship, pagan worship happening all around. This was that city that David had fought for. This was the place where the throne was established. And all of this chaos is ensuing. Complete chaos is surrounding the disciples of Jesus. And so he asks them a question. Look with me in Matthew 16, verse 13. He asks them a question. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then he asked this question, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right, let's pause. So what's happening here is that Jesus is asking them, okay, for 16 chapters now, we've been walking through uh, Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. He's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been telling parables, he's been doing all of this. And so now it's like this kind of catch-up point. Okay, now what are people saying about who I am? They go through prophets, maybe you're Elijah, John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Okay, now who do you say that I am? And this is really this first confession that we see in all of Matthew, this confession that you are the anointed one. That's what's meant by Christ, the Messiah. You are the anointed one. These promises, these expectations that have been going on for a thousand years, the the throne of David toppled over, the temple itself destroyed, built back up, and foreign gods coming in. On the altar in the temple, pigs being sacrificed, unclean animals being sacrificed to Zeus. The the entire thing come undone. All of these expectations, there's a promised one. In fact, the response that Jesus got there, some people say that you're Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch from, from David, From the root of Jesse, I I will bring a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is what they were holding on to. It's not completely over. A king will come, and he will be righteous, and he will bring justice, and all of this that we see, this chaos, he will set things right. So this expectation has been building for centuries in exile and deportation, in captivity and being brought back and building up their temple and having foreign kings come in and rule them. There was this hope. There was this expectation. And they said, we know who you really are. Peter. Peter says this, I know who you are. You are the anointed one. And Jesus' response to him was, blessed are you because you didn't figure that out. You didn't just like unlock all the parables and you're like, I figured it out. Like I did Dakota ring, like I figured it out. Like he, this Jesus guy that we've been following around for a while, he's the Messiah. Like it didn't happen like that. He's saying that God, the father has revealed this truth to him. Flesh and blood did not reveal this truth. But God, in his power and his sovereignty and in his grace, he has revealed this truth to Simon Peter. He is the Messiah. And they have all of these expectations. But some of those expectations need to be clarified. So look with me in verse 21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, same guy, Peter 
took him aside and began to rebuke him. You don't want to be this guy. You don't want to be the one who, who says, okay, I, God has revealed this to me. You are the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's going to take the throne of David, and now you're talking crazy, and I'm going to rebuke you. But that's what Peter does. He's a bold man. Okay, so he takes him aside, and he, he begins to rebuke him. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Verse 23. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's happened here is that Jesus has now rebuked Peter and he said, you don't understand. You've heard these promises, you've heard these expectations, but, but I need to clarify what these expectations mean. And that is that I have to go and suffer in Jerusalem. That has to happen. You say this will never happen, I say it must. This is the way, this is the only way that those expectations of the anointed one and the Messiah come about. It's through this road of suffering. These expectations had to shift. They had to change. And in many ways, what we think it means to be a disciple, that, that also needs to be clarified. And so Jesus clarifies for his disciples what it means to follow him. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus is teaching here about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower. He's laying out this hard truth of what it means to be a disciple. He's clarifying these expectations. If anyone wants to be a disciple, know this. You must deny yourself. You must take up a cross and you must follow me. Now, to give some historical and, and to be really clear with in interpretation here, Jesus is speaking immediately, like the first audience to these words, to men who really would see literal crosses. So the, the, the first hearing of this was to men who would have that kind of physical threat, that physical persecution. And really there are millions of people, millions of Christians all over the world who face that kind of threat. But much like Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10 where he says he's going to set you know, a son and a dad and a daughter and a mother and a, a daughter and a mother-in-law, he's, he's going to set them against one another that doesn't mean that everyone's going to have that family structure, that kind of family pain in being a disciple. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to face that. But, but that is to capture what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And similarly, this is just as striking for us, even if we might not ever face a literal cross, a literal physical persecution, 
it's, it's just as striking because the metaphor that Jesus uses here for a disciple is a cross. You see, that, that changes that expectation that discipleship fundamentally is not a program or a course. It's not a good mentor. It's not a workbook or any book. Fundamentally, discipleship is a cross. That's what Jesus says here. And we have to make sure that any, any manner of discipleship that we might think about and endeavor in, and all those things that I listed, mentor, books, classes, all those can, can be greatly beneficial in the life of being a disciple. But fundamentally, coming back to, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. A cross. That's the image he gives. But what does he mean by that? You see, it's not just important to talk about deep things. We have to understand what they mean for it to really matter. Uh, and so, so what does that mean? That discipleship is a cross. What does that mean? Jesus is saying that the cross is a reality. It's a reality for all of those who want to be disciples. You must deny yourself. You must die to self and follow me. One of my friends, Joel Busby, uh, he's a pastor, and about six years ago, I heard a sermon that he preached on Luke 9. And I still recall when, when he said this, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He was talking about how so often we hear people say, Jesus died on the cross so you don't have to. Jesus died on the cross so you don't have to. And that's partially true because Jesus did die on the cross. He, he, he became sin on our behalf. He took the wrath of God on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God that he would give us his righteousness and that we would not suffer. There is no condemnation. We would not suffer that death. That's true. But in another way, he didn't die on the cross so we wouldn't have a cross. He's calling us to our cross. We must die to self. He's calling us. He didn't die on the cross that we would be spared a cross. He says, take up your cross and follow me. We must die to self. Paul envisioned this death of self like this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are set free from our selfishness. That's what happens when we deny ourselves and when we die to self. We are set free from the curse of selfishness. In Christ, we are liberated from being so self-consumed and so self-absorbed. Okay, let's, let's walk through that. The curse of selfishness. Where did this curse come from? Well, Genesis 3, hear these words. As they heard the sound of the Lord, this is, this is after the apple, after the fall. As they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves in the, from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
You see, Adam's rebellion against God. That curse is that psychological isolation where selfishness and fear, he was afraid of God. That fear, that's where that takes root. See, Adam rejected the authority of God. And what came into place, hear that. When Adam rejected the authority of God, what came in place was the authority of self. That is the worst of who we are. And you, you know this. You, you know how selfish people are. Here, think about this. Think about someone, even like specifically, like think of a particular person. Think of someone that is just tirelessly selfish. Like you can't have a conversation. Like everything, like you're having the conversation, they're like, okay, back, back to me here. Um, like you, you know those, you have those friends where they're just continually bringing, it just circles everything like right back to me. All right, think of that person. Somebody, not all the time, but somebody sometimes thinks that about you. We are terribly, terribly self-absorbed. And there is really nothing, and, and we are about to, to walk into this for, for a round two here. There is nothing like a newborn to show you how selfish you are. The next best thing is, is getting married. Like when you get married, you see how terribly selfish you are. They just, they walk around like a mirror, just showing you how horribly selfish you are. And a child does that for sure. So helpless, so, so needy. And at every turn, like there's nobody else that comes in that's just like, okay, I'll do, you know, you're just like, just terribly, just shows you how selfish you are. I, I recently read um, Jim Gaffigan's book, Dad is Fat. Um, it's called that because that's his son's first sentence that he wrote ever. Dad is fat. Um, he's got five kids, five kids in New York in a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, they live five flights up, no elevator. So it's, he, he's got some insight into all of this. And he said, uh, he said, there's nothing like having a child to show you what a narcissist you are. He said, but the good news is I found out that I'm a really great, really special, wonderful narcissist. And that's how we feel sometimes. We're like, I might be a, a, a narcissist. I might be selfish, but I'm really good at it. Like, I'm really special. I, like, I, you still believe your guidance counselor from elementary school that you're just like the most special snowflake and there's never been anyone like you. You're so wonderful and special. And we believe that and we just turn in on ourselves and we just get so consumed with ourselves. And it's not just the Christian message that, that picks up on this problem of selfishness. Uh, this guy named Steven Pinker, he's a, a cognitive psychologist and scientist, and he, he wrote this, and let me read this really briefly to you. He said, some people think that evolutionary psychology claims to have discovered that human nature is selfish and wicked, but they are flattering the researchers and anyone who would claim to have discovered that. No one needs a scientist to measure where, whether humans are prone to selfishness. The question has been answered in history books, in newspapers, and in letters to Ann Landers. But people treat it like an open question, as if someday scientists might discover that it's all a bad dream, and we will wake up to find that it is human nature to love one another. See, we recognize that we are just so <coughs> selfish so self-absorbed. And this is the worst of us. 
our selfishness, our pride. And we know it. But Christ and his gospel speaks into the very worst of us. Christ and his gospel speaks to the very worst of us. Not just maximizing our potential. Hey, you've got some really good things. Let's just take it to the next level. It's not, not like a life coach, but it's like a surgeon. It goes, he goes to the worst part of us, our selfishness, and he confronts it. And he says, I want that out. In Christ, when we deny ourselves, when we pick up our cross and we die to self and we follow Jesus, that is a farewell to self. Do you hear that? As, dis- as discipleship being a call to the cross, that the denial of self, that the death of self and following Christ, that is the farewell to self. And the goal here, let me be clear, the goal here is not selflessness, as, as the world might try to encourage. Like, just be more selfless. Like, you know, go, go build wells and do work and, and houses and, and do this. It, now, that can be the outworking of following Jesus. In fact, it should be part of the outworking of following Jesus. But fundamentally, it's not selflessness. It's godliness. And maybe to say that more clearly... It's Christ-centeredness. We're not just aimlessly being selfless. There are monks who will set themselves on fire in other countries and be tremendously selfless. But that aimless selflessness has no business here in what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following him. It's not aimless. It's following him. So what does this look like? What does this look like? If this is what we're being called to and discipleship is the cross, then what does it look like day to day? I'm going to mention two ways here that we'll kind of unpack. The first one is this. We are set free to love and serve the Lord. We are set free to love and serve the Lord. It's not aimless selflessness. It's not generic kindness. It's not just goodwill. It is Loving and serving the Lord. And since this is kind of close by, John 15, John's gospel, if you would go a little bit further in your Bibles from Matthew, John 15, Jesus' teaching here. John 15, we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. Jesus' teaching here about what it means to live out this discipleship, to live out being a disciple of Jesus. And he says this, John 15, verse 8, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove, proof, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. All right. What Jesus is saying here is to the, the fruit, the proof of being a disciple, which means that you are denying 
yourself, that you have taken up your cross and that you are following Jesus means that you are obeying him. That you would obey him. That we would keep his commands. See, we are called to die to self and follow Jesus. That means obedience. That means surrender. Some of you probably spend more time seeking out the advice of friends when a situation comes up than seeking the Lord. I do that. But when we are denying self, taking up our cross and following him, that means that in this, in in being set free to love and serve the Lord, that looks like listening. Listening in prayer, in his word, some of, some of us will scour blogs for advice far longer than we will scour the scriptures and ask God for wisdom. True? But this is why we would just prefer some simple book. Just give me a book. Of, sign me up for a three-week class on discipleship. Like, just sign me up. Like, let's just tie a nice little bow on it. But when he sets out the cross, it can't be like that. It can't be like that. So what does this look like? It looks like listening. If your aim is to obey, then you must listen. Second thing. So the first one was this. We we are set free to love and serve the Lord. The second thing is this, that we are set free to love and serve one another. And a place where this is fleshed out, as as Paul is encouraging the, the Philippians, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a point of proof right there. There's some fruit right there. Are you counting others as more significant, more important than yourselves? That's what following him looks like. Counting others as more significant and more important than yourselves. We are called to be a community, a church family of people who count others more important than themselves. That's, that's, that's a good working definition of what the church is supposed to be. People who, because of Jesus, because of his cross, because of the redemption that he purchased for us, the grace extended to us, that we would be a community where we are actually looking to the needs of others more than our own needs. That means that we cannot be a community of self-absorbed leeches that just say, my expectations aren't being met, my expectations aren't being met. I'll be honest with you, more often than not, I find myself in that expectations not being met camp. Been looking out for the needs of other people and actually valuing them as more important than my own. You might feel the same way. So if the, if the previous one of loving and serving the Lord, if that was listening, then I would say that this one of loving and serving the people around us It's looking, that we are looking at other people, valuing them as more significant than ourselves, and it's looking for ways that we can serve them and love them. That we would actually have our eyes open, that we would be attentive, and we would look for opportunities to love and serve the people around us. And Jesus 
was so clear on that exact thing that he actually, again, he says, another proof of being a disciple, John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. More than any event that we could hold, more than any money that Redeemer Community Church could spend, more than anything else, what will draw this community's attention to what's happening here, what God is doing here, is our love for one another more than anything else. By extending grace to one another, by not bearing grudges against one another, by seeking reconciliation with one another and the people around this very building, that more than any dime we can spend on an event will make people say they must be disciples of Jesus. Do you believe that? Luke does something interesting as he is uh, recounting this teaching of Jesus. And I think that he does this to kind of give a little bit more body to, to how we should understand these words. And he adds a word in there. He says that we should deny ourselves, and take up our crosses daily. This is important. This, this is a fuller-bodied kind of image of, of thinking about what this actually means played out. He says this isn't a one-time aisle that you've walked, a, a prayer that you've prayed one time. This is a life of following Jesus, is that you deny yourself daily, that you pick up the cross daily, that you follow Jesus daily. Now, this is the outworking of redemption. This is the outworking of the children of God, sons and daughters. You were bought. This is not to earn salvation, but this is because of it. That we would live this out in denying ourselves, dying to self, and following Jesus. And we see that played out in loving and serving the Lord and in loving and serving those around us. And like I said, a good word for this is surrender that we would be completely surrendered to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's something that daily we really need to go over. Have I surrendered? I've, I've got a list of things that usually, if you've heard me preach before, I would rapid fire through. Um, but, but what I would prefer to do is to actually say them one at a time and you think about surrendering these things to God. Surrendering our priorities. Surrendering our time. Surrendering our money. Surrendering our sexuality. Surrendering our jobs. Surrendering our families. Surrendering our politics. Surrendering our thoughts, surrendering our past, our present, our future, our everything. Surrender. Jesus says that if anyone would follow after me, if anyone would desire to be a disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. When we die to self, he gives us a new self. He gives us himself. This is the hope that we cling to. But this is also the hard work that we endeavor 
as those who trust in Jesus, his atoning work, and seek to follow him as a disciple. He changes these expectations. And Peter would later see his expectations come undone. As King Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. As he came to save sinners. As he came to give his life as a ransom for many. His expectations were turned upside down. Because he came to deny himself. He came to pick up his cross. And he came to follow the commands of the Father for the joy set before him. And now he promises that joy for us as we follow him as disciples. Let's go to him in prayer. God, help us to join with Peter in declaring that you are the Christ. Jesus, you are the anointed one, the Messiah. And as you promised your disciples in Matthew 16, you will come again. You will come again in glory. Lord, help us to be disciplined in such a way that we would live out the working of redemption in our lives, that we would live as children of the Most High God. Lord, that we would live lives worthy of our calling to your grace knowing that this work is not to earn salvation, but it's because of it. Help us to listen. Help us to look for the needs of others. Not to just blind selflessness, Lord, but to Christ-centeredness. That we might see the fruit, that we might Prove one to another and delight in the fruit of loving one another and obeying your commands. Oh God, help us. Help us for your name, for your kingdom, for your glory, to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses and to follow you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So what we're going to do now is to take some time to reflect on God's word, his truth, to pray. Perhaps as, as I was going through that list of things, something really uh, resonated with you. Maybe all of them. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe a couple of them. And, and you, need, you need to think about that. You need to go to God in prayer. And you need to surrender. Maybe that's you. And, and you need to take time. Because there are, there are lots of things that the world can give you, but one thing that the world rarely will give you is time. And so what we would like to do is to take time in here, to quietly, to in, in our own reflection, to, to pray and to ask God to work his truth deep into our hearts for his name and his glory. So, so let's take this time together.